Okay, Hebrews chapter five, and the title is Jesus, Our Suffering Savior. As a pastor writes this congregation, he's confronting that sense of loss that was in the minds of these believers that having left uh, Judaism, and that's probably not even the best way to say it, but you know, Jesus was the fulfillment of the law, Judaism under the law was continuing, and as they pulled away from that, because they did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah, there are aspects of that that they felt um, they were missing. And one of them was having a high priest that could go and minister on their behalf. So this chapter is going to continue to address that sense of loss and show actually there's no loss at all. I mean, Jesus has is your high priest, and he is so faithful in the way in which he is taking care of and is ministering to you. Now, in our next study, verses 11 through 14, he's going to say, now, the reason why you don't understand this is because you're dull of hearing. You're lazy listeners, and you're not digging into the word. I love to be able to share more of this with you, but I can't because i got to lay the foundations of your faith, the ABCs and one, two, threes, Got to lay it down again. So at the end of this chapter, they're in for a little bit of a rebuke, and, but that will be in our next study. Let's look at this this morning, though, and that Jesus is our suffering Savior. He begins by addressing and evaluating that priesthood that they so loved and they were so missing, the Aaronic priesthood. Now, to be careful, God established this. This is not something they thought up on their own, but now it's fulfilled through Jesus Christ, and that's the part that they're having a hard time with. So in verses one through four, we're talking about the priesthood, and there's about, I think there's four points that we're gonna glean from this section. So the first one is found in the first part of verse one. It says, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the first thing that he wants to say and it's an obvious thing, is that the priests of Aaron, they were men. They were taken from among men. Uh, This is significant because Jesus, of course, being the son of God, has come, but he's taken on human flesh, and, and so he gets to serve in that way, a point that he's already made earlier. But they were taken from among the tribe of Levi, and specifically the priesthood was from Aaron who was a Levite. When Israel was in Egypt and they were being delivered, they were coming out of the land with some two million people. They didn't have a constitution. They didn't have any kind of government system. They didn't have a, a, you know, a way to, to govern themselves. And so God gave them a law. It told them how to care for the poor. It told them how to deal with criminals, how to deal with foreigners. Um, it instructed them in so many different ways. But one of the aspects that was most significant was told them how they were to come and worship him. And he appointed priests that would serve in this capacity to lead them and guide them into worship of the Lord. And so it was God's idea. And he took these men. They were not angels that came down. They were men that were of their own family that served as priests. Still in verse 1, not only were they from men, but they're appointed for men, from men, for men. And, 
and they were not um, perfect as we're going to see, but they were appointed to serve as a mediator. A mediator is one that goes um, on your behalf to another. And in this case, it was these priests that were going to mediate for uh, Mankind for the Israelites, they would bring their sacrifices, they would bring their thanksgiving offerings, and they would bring those to the Lord inside the tabernacle of meeting and later on in the temple. And so he was a mediator. And, and this is something that they grew very fond of. I mean, this man was going to go and appear before God on your behalf. That's no small deal. I mean, you think about the most uh, desperate situation you could ever be in. And if somebody was to say, don't worry about it, I'm going to go in and I'm going to take care of it all on your behalf. How grateful you would be to that person. And this is what that priest was doing. They, as we're going to see, didn't have a right to go in on their own. They were dependent upon these men. And so they would bring the sacrifices and they would bring the offerings. And specifically, and I think it's kind of the backdrop of what we've been talking about. One of their ministries was on the Day of Atonement. They would make a sacrifice on the altar. They would bring in the blood of that sacrifice into the most holy place. And they would sprinkle blood upon the uh, mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. It's called the mercy seat. It wasn't a chair. It was a lid. But this is, this is what they would do. But only one man once a year could do that for the sins of the nation. And so they were dependent upon them. So he was taken from among men. He was a mediator. In verse 2, we find out he was sympathetic. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. So this man that was going in on your behalf to bring a blessing from and thanksgiving from maybe the, you know, the, the crops that, that you had harvested, or he's bringing you a, a sacrifice for your sins or a burnt offering or a drink offering, that one that was going before you, he was sympathetic to you. He understood your need for this because he himself, as we're going to see, had a need. But he, you, you know, as you went in there, you're like, oh, I can't believe I'm here again. He's like, listen, there's been a lot of people that have been here again. And um, I have to keep making sacrifices for myself. So there was a sympathy, there was a compassion that this man had. A point that the writer has already made is that Jesus is able to understand our weaknesses because he was tempted in all manners like us. And he is that faithful high priest. So just a reiteration. And then... The next point is, in verse 3, is that he was flawed. Now, this is not a positive thing, but it's just a reality. And we read, because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. He was sympathetic because he himself was a sinner. Jesus was sympathetic not as a sinner, but as one who was tempted to sin. But this one who was flawed, and he would have to make an atonement for himself. He would make a sacrifice for sins, something Jesus did not have to do. Oh, Jesus was a mediator, and Jesus was sympathetic. Um, Jesus was from among men. He was born uh, to Mary, but he was certainly not flawed. He was sinless. And then the next point in verse 4 is, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who was called by God just as Aaron was. 
The fourth, uh, verse four, the, the, I guess it would be the fifth point, right? He was ordained. This was someone that was called specifically by God. This wasn't because he was the highest bidder, although at a time in their corruption, that's how you became the high priest. But that's not the way God designed it. God designed it that if you were a descendant of Aaron, then you could be a part of that priestly family. The whole tribe of Levi served in the temple, but it was the sons of Aaron that served as priests, and only the high priest could have been a descendant of Aaron. And so they were called by God. They didn't just think it up on their own. It wasn't a committee that voted them in. It was the Lord himself, and he made that point as they left Egypt that it would be Aaron's sons. Now, this was challenged um, later on by Korah. Well, not directly this point, but you'll see the, you'll see the connection. Korah, um, one who was in the tribe of Levi, um, didn't like the authority that Moses had. He didn't like that Moses was saying, let's go, let's travel, let's do this, let's do that. Here's the law. He became jealous of him, and Korah actually challenged Moses and said, you take too much upon yourself. I think I can do your job. Moses said, well, maybe you can. Let's ask the Lord. Let's ask the Lord. Maybe he does want you to have this. So Moses prayed and said, if you want me to be your guy, then I'll be your guy. If you want it to be him, then Lord, show us. Well, the next thing that happened was proof positive that he didn't want Korah because the ground opened up and swallowed up him and his family and closed. Yeah, you lose. That's the answer. Now, you would think that would have caused everybody to be humbled and to have been like, all right, we will never challenge your authority again. But they actually blame Moses for the death of Korah. He's like, "Uh, listen, I don't know how to open up the earth and shut the earth. That's not my job. God did that. But the point for us is, You can't take on a role that God has not given you. God gives gifts. God gives a call. And you walk in what God has given you to do. I believe this is still true um, for us, is that God gives, by the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts to us. And we need to walk in the gifting that we've been given. Now, another example, which ties in more closely with the priesthood, is from the life of Uzziah. By the way, you can read about Korah in Numbers chapter 16. But King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26, uh, one of the great kings of Israel, decides that he wants to be able to function as a priest. So he just strolls on down to the temple, walks past the altar of sacrifice, goes into the holy place, which he was not allowed, walks in there all the way up to the altar of incense, and he offers up incense, which was only to be done by a priest. And the next thing that happened is that he breaks out with leprosy, which was God's way of saying, you don't get to do it your way. I have a way in which I want things done, and you are not the man to offer up incense on this altar. You can be the king, but you can't do that. So it's significant that Aaron and his sons were called by God to be the priest. And people who strive to attain a position or walk out a calling that God has not given to them, it reveals their pride and their distrust of the Lord. Now listen, that is a two-way street, meaning this. You may have a call upon your life, 
and you run from it. Or there's something that you look at and you say, man, I wish I could do that, and you try to do it, but God has not called you. Both of them are equally prideful. You're rejecting what God is giving you to do, and you're not walking it out. But for the priests, they were called by God. They did not take this honor to themselves. We read there in verse 4. So that's who they were. That's who the, uh, the priests of Aaron were. But in verses 5 through 10, we get introduced to another order of priesthood, and it's the Melchizedek priesthood. And we'll talk a little bit about who Melchizedek is today and a whole lot more when we get to chapter 7. So he's the author writing is going to show that Jesus is our high priest. And so we read in verse 5 and 6 that Jesus was appointed. So also, in other words, the sons of Aaron did not take the honor to themselves and become a priest. So also the Messiah did not glorify himself to become high priest. He didn't just wake up and say, ah, I'm going to be a high priest too. Because Jesus was a descendant, uh, well, born to Mary, and Mary was of what tribe? Tribe of Judah. A descendant of David, not of Levi. And so we read, he did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of not Aaron, but Melchizedek. So even as the sons of Aaron did not take this position, so the Lord did not take this position to himself. He would have no right to just make something else up that was not previously revealed. And so he's going to show them that the word um, specified that this was going to take place. So he goes back and he goes to the Old Testament scriptures and said that the Messiah would be a priest forever and he'd be of the order of Melchizedek. God had determined who the priest would be under the Mosaic covenant, the sons of Aaron. But under the new covenant, it was going to be a new priestly order. Or actually, it's going to be an old priestly order that was going to be reignited in the person of Jesus. And this is Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? Well, remember when Abraham had rescued Lot after he had been taken by the kings of the east. And he went up and he rescued him. And as he was heading back down south to come home, he was passing by Jerusalem. And somebody came out of Jerusalem and met him bringing uh, bread and wine. And as he came, Abraham took offerings and he gave the offerings to Melchizedek, which the point there is the lesser does not give to the greater. Actually, the greater does not give to the lesser. The lesser gives to the greater. And so Melchizedek um, was, was considered to be the greater, a point that we'll get into later. But in that, we, we get this uh, statement about Melchizedek in Genesis as that he was a priest of the Most High God and he was the king of Salem. So this priest that served there in Jerusalem, a priest of the Most High God, 
He is of that order, that priestly order. And so he even goes to the psalm and says, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus was not just taking something on his own because you can imagine how the conversation went. Hey, we've, you, you don't even have a high priest to represent you. What are you doing for your sins? Oh, well, Jesus died for our sins, but he's not a high priest. Yeah, yeah, he's a high priest too. No, he's not. He's a, he was born to Mary. She's from the tribe of Judah. You have no, he can't do that for you. And they come back to church. They said that he can't do that because he's of the tribe of Aaron. Oh, oh yeah, but the Bible also says that he'd be a pre, there'd be a priest that would come according to the order of Melchizedek. So he can be that one. So he's instructing them and he is, is teaching them about this. In Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13, we read, yes. He, speaking of Jesus, shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. King is in view. So he shall be a priest on his throne. So the Bible speaks of Jesus, the Messiah, holding both positions of both priest and king. And the council of peace shall be between them both or in both offices of king and priest. So the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, looked forward to this king who would also serve as a priest, a king according to the lineage of David, and a priest according to the lineage of Melchizedek. God had a plan for the Old Covenant, and he had a plan for the New Covenant. But the point that the author is making is, Jesus did not take this to himself, the Father had appointed him to this role as well. And Jesus said, I only do those things which the Father tells me to do. I only speak those things which the Father tells me to speak. And so he was in perfect subjection to um, his heavenly Father. Now in verses seven and eight, we move on and we see that Jesus was a suffering service. He was a servant. He was appointed, but he also was a suffering servant. Let's read verse 7. It says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Although he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So Jesus is that suffering servant. Jesus seeking to serve as the high priest, a mediator going before us, came to a moment in his ministry, verse seven, where he began to cry out to the Lord for help. He began to to weep. He began to, to ask to be saved from death. Now, when we think about this, most of our minds are going to an event that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. This was right before he's about to be arrested hours before he was to be crucified. And Jesus went to Gethsemane. Gethsemane is at the bottom of the Kidron Valley. And if you were in the Kidron Valley, if you look straight up, there's the temple. So you have the Temple Mount. It goes down into this little valley, comes back up to the Mount of Olives. At the base of the Mount of Olives, right across from the temple, is the Garden of Gethsemane. The interesting thing about the word Gethsemane, it comes from... Uh, two Aramaic words. One means oil and one means press. An oil press. Where would an oil press be found? 
in a place where you would find olive trees. And we know historically that that's exactly what took place there. And so if you wanted the oil, and that was crucial for all types of purposes to have this olive oil, but if you wanted the olive oil, you had to press that olive and get that, get that you know, um, oil out. And then you could use it for something. You'd have to filter it and, and all the rest. But this was something that was valuable. You couldn't get what was valuable unless it was pressed. Jesus, as our mediator, he is our high priest, but he's going to be pressed. And in being pressed, he's going to give us something valuable, and that is an atonement for our sins. But in the Gospels, reading about this scene where he's in the garden, we read, first of all, in Mark 14, verse 34, it says, Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. I don't know if you've ever been that sorrowful. I don't know if you've ever been that vexed. I have never been that vexed. I've been bothered by things. I've been troubled by things. But I've never experienced the point of being vexed to the point of death, but your Lord and your Savior, he did. He understands what it's like to be pressed. And so this lines up with what we're reading about in verse seven of chapter five, that Jesus offered up prayers and supplication. But it, more details given, if we go to Luke 22, in verses 40 through 44, we read, when he came to the place, that would be Gethsemane, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then the angel, then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. As he was emotionally and spiritually being pressed, he physically began to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood there in that place of the olive or the oil press. And, and this lines up with what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus was, he was in a, in a vexed state. He was crying out and he was praying for help. You know, he prayed to the one that was able to save him from death. And it says that he was heard because of his godly fear. Now, in verse 8, though, it says he learned obedience by the things he suffered. And we wouldn't necessarily think that those two verses would go together, would we? We would think that he prayed with vehement cries to be delivered from death. And therefore, the angels came down, took him out of the garden of Gethsemane, and he did not die and go to the cross. Because in our minds, we often equate answered prayer with deliverance out of. But here we see, as in so many places, that it's also deliverance through. And when Jesus prayed, we get a fuller understanding of what his prayer was there in Luke 22. It wasn't just get me out of this. His prayer was more than that, wasn't it? He says, allow this cup to pass for me. Then what does he say? Nevertheless. Not what I want, but what you want. If I need to go, then I'm willing to go. And the Lord answered his prayer, and angels gave him the strength he needed to go and suffer in this situation. Verse 8 tells us 
that Jesus learned obedience in his mediation. He needed help in his mediation, but as he received strength, he then learned obedience. That's an odd thing to say about one who's omniscient. Omniscient means all-knowing. Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. So how can the all-knowing one learn anything? And I think it's in the same vein as what we read about Jesus. Um, Again, in the Gospel of Luke, when he was growing up, it says that he grew in the wisdom and stature of men. There, Jesus grew physically, emotionally, um, and so he grew like a, a normal human being. And while Jesus knew all things, there were some things that he learned through actually experiencing them. It's no different than us. You can know something, but then you go through it, and you understand it in a very, very different way. It's kind of like Job said, I've heard of you with the hearing of the ear. Now I've seen you with the seeing of the eye. You know, I heard about these things, but now I know about these things. Now I've lived them out. And Jesus experientially learned through suffering what it was to be obedient, which makes him, again, a a faithful high priest to us. The work of mediation was a tough work. And Jesus was the faithful high priest to go ahead and do that. But he wasn't going to be just one that would go as a high priest. He was going to go also as a sacrifice. This is an amazing thing. Jesus is the the priest. He is the sacrifice. He is the veil through which the priest would pass through. He is the mercy seat on which the blood will be sprinkled. He is everything. Jesus fulfilled it all, from the animate to the inanimate um, aspects of of salvation. And we've looked at these as we've gone through. I think there's a lesson for us here, is that we too can expect the Lord to hear us every time we call him, on him, but we need to learn how to pray when we call upon him. Because what we often pray for is, get me out of this jam. If you're Lord and you're God, then get me out. And the Lord's like, I am Lord and I am God. And sometimes he'll get us out. Sometimes he removes us from those circumstances. And it is a hallelujah deliverance moment. There's a lot of moments in life. I'm going to say there's more moments in life where he gives us the grace to go through something than he takes us out of a situation. And this is what Jesus learned. And so when he prayed this prayer, the angels came from heaven to give him the grace and the strength to be that faithful high priest. Be careful of that prevalent um, mentality that says that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, everything's going to be easy. It's easy peasy. Just be a Christian. And then you'll never have difficulty or hardship again. You'll be wealthy, you'll be healthy, and your life will just be so smooth. Really? Where where do you read that in the Bible? You don't find that. And whether it's somebody's teaching it or it's just where our mind goes. Because let's face it, and I'll put my name at the top of the list. Although I'm teaching this and I know this and I've taught this for years, there is that part of me that does not expect that I should have to go through hardship. <laughs> I, know I, can te- I can teach you a Bible study that we do, but when I'm in the middle of it, 
It doesn't feel like that should be happening to me. It should be happening to you, but not me. I mean, you, we all kind of get that. It's, it's kind of like none of us are worried about the trials that happened throughout the world yesterday. That might be exactly what I'm going through today. Nobody questioned the faithfulness and the sovereignty and the mercy of God yesterday, although it happened to thousands of people, but now that same event happens in my life today, and oh no, I don't know if God's on the throne anymore. Well, wait, what about yesterday? What didn't happen to me yesterday? Uh-huh, so you see, kind of the same thing. I know that you're supposed to go through trials, I just don't think I'm supposed to. And we had, we, that mentality comes whether you want it or not, you've got to fight it off. Philippians 3, 8 through 11 gives us some instruction about that. Look at Paul's mentality. He says, yet, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. If I can just know him, I'm willing to lose everything. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection, we're like, yes, know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. See, Paul understood that we were going to live life much like Jesus did. And Jesus, even though he was a son, the, the emphasis is there in Hebrews, even though he was his son, he learned obedience through suffering. But because he was willing to say, if you I, let this cup pass, but if that's not your will, then I'm willing to suffer, the, the angels came to him. Listen, I'm not going to make a, a once-for-all statement on this, but I know this applies on some level, and I don't even want to begin to try and figure out when it applies, and it doesn't. But sometimes we're not getting the strength and the help from heaven because we only gave God one option. The only option was, you get me out of this, and that's the only thing I want to hear. We don't say, nevertheless, we just say, get me out of here. But when we come to the place where we can say, I would like to get out of here, but I would rather do your will more than that. Now God can send the help from heaven. But while we stand stiff-necked, expecting to receive something that not even the sun could get, which was a trouble-free life, the Lord, I believe, withholds the aid and the strength that we so desperately need. But when we humble ourselves and we just say, I'm not going to even pretend to know what the answer should be. I want out, but I also want what you want. So if they're in conflict, then just do what you got to do. Now the Lord can come and help that heart, can't he? But as long as we stand stiff-necked and saying, do it my way, or I don't want anything, I think those angels stay there in heaven, unwilling to come with the aid that we so desperately need. God does not give grace to the proud, what does he do to the proud? Humbles them. But those that are humble, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What does he do? He lifts them up and he gives them the grace that they are in need of. And so I just encourage you to come and receive that grace 
to come to that place where you just trust the Lord. You can't do what, the, what Jesus did with his father, and you can't do, and I can't do what I'm saying we need to do in our own suffering unless you trust the person to whom you're commending your care into their hands. Do you trust that person? Do you trust the Lord to do the very best thing for you? Here's the, the truth and reality. I don't know better than God, and neither do you. So if I'm going through it, and I pray to be delivered out of it, and that's not happening, then I guess I better just receive the grace to get through it. And it's going to take that place of, of being obedient. And so, again, I think at times we have an expectation that the Lord will do for us. Mm, I don't want to say it that way. I think we have an expectation that God must do the things the way we want to do them. And yet that isn't something he was even willing to do for his son. And then we get angry at him. We begin to challenge him. Wait, but the son didn't do that. The son didn't do that. He, he humbled himself. Look at verses 9 and 10 as we wrap it up. This mediation that Jesus went through and the help that he received as our high priest resulted in verses 9 and 10 as securing for us eternal salvation. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Let me read verse 9 to you again, but from the New Living Translation. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Um, this word here for perfected, if you go into the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word perfected, um, I think it's Exodus 29.9, Exodus 29.29. And if you read that in the New King James, it's gonna, you're going to find the word consecrated of the high priest, that they were consecrated. It's the same word. So if you can just imagine this for a moment for, for these Jews... They're wondering, where's our high priest? Oh, you have a high priest. He's of the order of Melchizedek. Oh, that's how we answer them. I'd never seen that verse. I never realized that verse. He's of the order of Melchizedek. But not only that, he's been perfected. He's consecrated, and he is the author of eternal salvation. That priest could go in as a consecrated man and offer up a sacrifice for them and atone for their sins. But they could not bring eternal salvation. Our high priest offers us eternal salvation, something that every man, woman, and child on planet Earth need. When we pass from this life, what is going to give you entrance into eternity with God? It is Jesus and him alone. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And that name is who? It's Jesus, your faithful high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, the one who doesn't need to atone for his own sins, but atoned for yours, whom the Father helped as he mediated and became the sacrifice and the priest. And so you must call upon the Lord. You must call upon Jesus. And what we read there at the end of uh, verse 9, it says that this eternal salvation is to all who obey him. So it's very broad. 
whosoever will can come to Jesus, right? Jesus calls all people to himself. But that doesn't mean all people are going to be saved. Many are called, few are chosen. You know, broad is a path that leads to destruction, narrows the road that leads to life. But it's for all people. It's for Jew and Gentile. It's for man and woman. It's for rich and poor. It's for all people, this salvation that Jesus offers. But it is to those who what? Obey him. This word for obey, it's a present active participle, which I know just is very exciting to you. But here's what the present tense of this word communicates. It's not just like it's happening now. It speaks of continuous action. So when we read of this continuous, or we read of obeying taking place, it's not that it's just it happens once and stops. There is a different tense that they could have used. They could have used the aorist tense if they wanted to which would have identified a point in time like, that you obeyed, you got saved on this day, boom, this time, this hour, you obeyed the gospel. But that's not the tense that's used. It's not punctiliar or a point on a, on a timeline. It's something that's an ongoing action, a line that continues to go out. So those who receive this eternal salvation are those who are obeying. They're like, well, it sounds like we're earning our salvation. Well, who... who do servants obey? They obey their Lord. And what we find out is that if you're going to confess, that we should confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I tell you? Scripture expects, and the book of Hebrews makes this clearer than probably any other book, it expects that we walk in obedience to him. So all those that are being saved are those that are obeying him. Those that have entered into a relationship with him, you will continue to abide. And I pray that that is something you're doing. But if there is anything in your mind or thought or anybody's exposed you to this idea, and that is, hey, you got saved at a point in time, you know, date, hour, minute, and don't worry about it. Now you're good. You don't have to do anything else. That's not what the Bible teaches. Eternal salvation is for those who are obeying him. And those that are saved are the ones that are obeying him. But don't allow somebody to creep in with their foolish teaching and saying, well, you're saved, now you don't have to obey Jesus anymore. Jesus says, no. Why do you call me Lord if you don't obey me? I expect obedience. And Jesus is our high priest. He offers eternal salvation to those who obey him. Present active participle. It does mean something, doesn't it? And it's that ongoing obedience. Here we are at the beginning of the, the new year. Continue to walk in obedience to Jesus. Continue to live for him. Continue to walk out the gifting that God has given to you in your life. You don't try and be something you're not. And don't be what you are. Don't, don't try and avoid what you are. What God has called and gifted you to do. Well, I have other things I want to do. They are rubbish compared to what the Lord has called you to do. Be faithful to follow him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and your truth. We ask that we would be those humble servants. Father, if your son 
place of privilege in eternal relationship could yield himself to whatever you wanted, then certainly we, sinful, fallen men and women, can do the same. We ask that you would give us a humble heart to receive what you have for us. Maybe you're in that place where you have been struggling with the Lord. Would you just right now just acknowledge the, the Lord and say, Lord, I receive what you have. I don't understand it, I don't get it, but I accept it and I'm asking for strength to live it out. Maybe you've never come to Jesus and called him Lord. You've never acknowledged that he hung and died on the cross, that he's your high priest. But you see so clearly this morning that you need a high priest. Then ask him to forgive you. Come to him. Let him be your mediator so that when you pass from this life, you will pass into heaven where eternal life will be granted to you because you are a follower of Jesus and you've come to him. I'll give you a moment to pray.